There's a story, the story of the book of Samuel, that is a story that would be familiar to, I would wager, just about all people in all cultures, in all times and places. It is, in essence, the story of a sitting king, a crowned king, and an upstart challenging him for the throne. And depending on whose side you're on, uh, this is either the rightful king uh, making war against a rebel, or it's a righteous challenger making war against an unworthy king. Uh, Doesn't really matter. Uh, All you need to know is that this is a story that has happened, that is repeated over and over and over all throughout human history. It's a story anyone from any culture would recognize right away. And in this case, in the version told in Samuel, uh, it's the challenger who wins. The king, Saul, is defeated, and he dies on the battlefield. And David, the challenger, takes the throne. Now, we might not like to think about this, but the fact is that every time this story happens, uh, the next thing that happens is always the same. If, If the new king has any sense at all, the first thing he is going to do is what? He's going to move quickly and ruthlessly to secure his throne. What that means, if you're David, is you want to look around and you want to make sure that if there are any any relatives of the old King Saul, especially any male relatives, you got to take care of them. That might mean killing them. That might mean just doing something to make sure that they can't do what you did, which is travel around the country, raising troops, and challenging you for the throne. The son or grandson of a former king is always an easy person for those unhappy with the current king to rally around. And so we're not surprised, we're not the least bit surprised when David, after taking the throne, looks around and he finds a servant of the old king's household and he brings him before him and he says, says, hey, do you know of any relatives of the former king who might still be alive? I'd like to show them some kindness. To which the servant's thinking, yeah, I wasn't born yesterday. Uh, and, and, but, you know, he knows who's king now, too. And he says, well, actually, as a matter of fact, I do know of a grandson of King Saul who's still alive. It's a man named Mephibosheth. And David says, well, go without delay. Bring him here to me. Servant goes, okay. And for the record, Mephibosheth knows how this works, too. He was the grandson of a king. And so when he's brought before the king, he immediately throws himself on the floor at the feet of the new king, David, and he says, I am your servant. And he says, no, no, in fact, I'm not even your servant. I I, I don't know how I, a dead dog, that's what he calls himself, a dead dog, would even have come to your attention, O king. You see, Mephibosheth knows how the next chapter of the story goes. But David looks down at Mephibosheth and says, get up, Mephibosheth. I didn't call you here to harm you. I called you here to show you favor. And Mephibosheth gets up, and in a a statement, a declaration that must have shocked the whole court, David says, in fact, what I'd like to do is I am going to restore all the land, all the possessions, all the houses, everything that belonged to your father, the prince, will be returned to you for as long as you live. And as for you, Mephibosheth, you will sit at my table and you will enjoy the favor of the king as long as I draw breath. It's a shocking twist 
to a story that we all know, that we've all seen play out over and over and over. Mephibosheth shows up at the palace expecting to find death, and instead he finds grace. There's just, there's something about grace that when we witness it, when we see it, it it moves us. It, It almost takes our breath away. And grace, especially the grace of God, revealed in both the Old and New Testaments, is one of the distinguishing features of the Christian faith. Now, other religions can and do incorporate notions of grace, but not of the kind, or I would argue, of the scale that Christianity does. Grace, for us, it's a constant feature of the biblical story. It's a consistent inspiration of our worship and awe. And, frankly, it's a load-bearing pillar of our Christian theology. Think of what we titled the sermon series we're wrapping up today. Core beliefs. Core beliefs. Grace is not just part of Christianity. It is core to our faith. It is central. Or, you could think of it the other way around, too, which is this. Without grace, there simply is no such thing as Christianity. And that's no exaggeration. And yet, I have a suspicion that like many such core ideas, grace is something we refer to constantly, but we seldom take the time to sit down and think through exactly what we mean by it. And so grace becomes something like a theological suitcase, right? It's a tidy, closed package that contains within it a large variety and quantity of meaning. And so what I'd like us to do this morning is simply this. I want us to sit down together and open that suitcase, and unpack it, to look through the contents, to remind ourselves of what we mean when we talk about God's grace. And maybe more importantly, to remind ourselves of what God has done to make grace so central to the Christian faith in life. Now, I'm going to warn you to do that. I'm going to jump around quite a bit this morning in in the Bible Uh, So to to help with that, we're going to put a lot of those passages up on the screen. So if you want, you're welcome to flip through your Bible, or you can just read along with the slides. Uh, Second, I just want to acknowledge at the front, I am drawing on, for this sermon, I'm drawing on a spectacular book called Paul and the Power of Grace by a guy named John Barclay. Uh, If you would like, if you're sitting here and thinking to yourself, you know, I would like a magisterial book that looks thoroughly at what scripture and past Christian thinkers have said about grace, this is it. Uh, I would recommend it very highly. Uh, I'm drawing on some of the categories and language he uses precisely because, in my experience, he is so good at unpacking that suitcase helpfully and carefully. All right, let's dive in. Uh, What I'd like to do is, is I'd like to start with just what I would call a simple working definition of grace. Uh, if you've never done this, it's kind of fun. You can look in, if anyone still has, you know, maybe you're like us, you keep a, one of those old Merriam-Webster dictionaries for when you need to like flatten things out and get wrinkles out of them. You just, that's about all we use it for, but we still have it. If you were to look up grace in one of those dictionaries, you're going to find 10 plus definitions. And they're actually, they vary widely from, from prayer, you know, saying grace before a meal, to a description of, of athletes and different performers, There'll be over 10 entries, and only one or two will deal specifically with Christian theology. Uh, But what we mean when we talk about grace in the context of the Christian faith is we are talking about, simply, an act 
or attitude of favor or a gift. So an act or attitude of favor or a gift. Uh, In fact, the Greek word charis, which we translate usually as grace, can and sometimes is translated as gift. Uh, You can think of, of Paul's famous verse, right? For it's by grace that you have been saved. It's by charis that you've been saved. Uh, not of works. It is the gift of God. It's the charis of God. Same word, both places, all right? And if you think about it, that makes sense. Uh, What is a gift but an act of favor? Now, in this broad sense, an act or attitude of favor, I think you could rightly argue that if God is God, right, if he is the creator and author of all things, then everything we have, every good thing is evidence of his grace, Uh, God reveals his favor in all these things he does. Uh, Our good and beautiful world, our health, our families, our church, even our very lives. Uh, If you think about it, so many of the things that we value most are things that we have not and could not earn. They are a gift of a gracious God. Uh, This is just the one fun one I like to think about. Existence. Your existence how could we earn existence without already existence, existing? The fact that we are here, that we have life, is evidence of God's grace. Now, all of that, I think, comes under the broad umbrella of biblical grace. But when you hear the phrase, like in the sermon title this morning, grace alone, saved by grace alone, uh, something more specific is in view. So what I want to explore specifically this morning is what we might call God's saving grace. That is, the gift of God that makes salvation possible. Uh, And that gift, of course, is the person and work of Jesus, which is the only grounds for salvation. If you didn't hear that sermon from a few weeks ago, I'd encourage you to look it up on our YouTube channel. It's it's hard to appreciate what we mean by grace alone if you don't understand uh, that the gift is Jesus alone. So, Here's what I'd like us to think through this morning. What do we mean, what do we mean when we say we are saved by grace alone? Uh, What is in that suitcase in our minds that we label God's saving grace? Well, this morning, I'd like us to look at three facets of God's saving grace together. So here we go. First, God's saving grace is without any prior conditions. Look with me at Romans 3, 23 to 24. It's without any prior conditions. It says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to make, I know I'm, I'm notorious for this, but I want to make two subpoints. all right? First, When we say it's without any prior conditions, what I mean is that God's gift, his offer of salvation, comes first. That is, God is the one who initiates. He's not responding to us. We are responding to him. Uh, Look, Paul says here, God doesn't send his son, he doesn't send Jesus because God looks down and goes, man, look at how hard they're striving towards righteousness. What a great job they're doing. I'm going to give them a little help. No, in fact, Paul says the opposite is true. What happens is God looks down and he sees our sin. He sees how desperate our need is. In seeing that we were sinners who had fallen short, God acts first. While we were still sinners, God graciously offered us redemption through the gift of Jesus. In fact, 
if you think about it, uh, this is true all throughout Scripture, right? Go all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, does Abraham seek God out, or does God seek Abraham out? God seeks Abraham and makes a covenant with him. Later at Mount Sinai, God meets with the people of Israel. Does God make a covenant with them because he looks at them and goes, man, because you have already proven yourselves to be superior in your obedience to my law, because you have already demonstrated great faithfulness to me, I will reward you with a covenant. Nope, it works exactly the other way around. God makes the covenant first, then asks them to be faithful. It's true over and over. And then, of course, most tellingly, in Jesus. Jesus does not die for a group of people who have already demonstrated great faithfulness to him. He dies for us, Paul says, while we were still sinners, while we were living in rebellion against him. Romans 5.8. We respond to God's gift. His gift of grace comes first. He initiates. So what I mean when I say there are no prior conditions is, is that we don't have to do anything to entice God into offering us salvation. The gift of salvation has already been offered. God offered it first. Second, when I say it's without prior conditions, I mean that God's gift is not based on any prior evaluation of our worth. Look with me at Galatians 3.28. Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now listen, I think this is one of those ideas um, that we are so familiar with that, that we no longer recognize exactly how radical it is. So let me say it again. What Paul is saying here is that God offers salvation to humanity to all people, the same gift to all people, regardless of their social or moral standing, regardless of their past history or their group identity. He offers it equally to Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. This is such a huge part of what makes the good news so good. And it is, it's a radical, it might even be a singular phenomenon in human history. Here's what I mean. If you think about it, you'll find that uh, all human cultures in all times and places are enmeshed in a myriad of systems for determining and ascribing and evaluating worth for all the people involved in them. Right? This is just what we do as people. In the ancient world, a lot of that revolved around family connections, national identity, wealth, and gender. Just to give you an example, and you know, this is not only not contentious, everyone acknowledges this is true, which is ancient Greeks and Romans were certain, they're convinced that they were superior to Jews and other barbarians. They just knew it to be true. And in the same way, Jews were certain in their turn that they were superior to Gentiles, to Greeks and to Romans. And ladies, uh, as I'm sure you know, the men from all of those groups were certain that they were superior to women. And the wealthy in all of those groups were certain that they were superior to the poor. And before we start feeling too self-righteous about our own situation, I think 
that we are not much different ourselves. At most, I think you'll find, we lean on some of those criteria less, but we lean on others, like education, more. We still use those systems for helping us determine the worth of other people, how to respond to them and to relate to them. Given that's true, I want you to recognize how radical this is. That despite all of that, God, when he offered us the greatest gift that's ever been offered, nothing less than salvation and eternal life, offered the same gift to all people on equal terms. God took no account, no account, of the worth ascribed to us by any of these other systems. Now, it's worth noting, the followers of Jesus don't grasp this right away. It is radical. It takes them a minute to figure it out, but what's really great about the New Testament is we can kind of watch it happen. Uh, One of my favorite stories comes from Acts 10. Uh, In Acts chapter 10, God calls Peter, uh, and when I say calls Peter, he twists his arm and, and coerces Peter into going to the house of Cornelius, a Roman, to share the gospel. Uh, and and it, it takes some effort, all right? It takes repeated visions. It takes voices from heaven. But finally, Peter gets the message, and he goes to the house of Cornelius, uh, and he shares the good news. He shares with Cornelius about Jesus. Uh, and Cornelius and his whole household, hearing the gospel, believes, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this might be fun for you to re, you know, reread with this in mind, but what I'd like to draw your attention to this morning is this. Until that day, it had never occurred to Peter, it had never even occurred to him to share the good news about Jesus with a Gentile. And in his defense, why would it? Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and Cornelius was not a Jew. Surely, Peter would think, Jesus was the gift promised to the Jewish people, to God's chosen people. Surely this was their reward for being faithful to God's law all these years, for suffering persecution and oppression because of their covenant. Surely this was their reward. And because this is so ingrained in him, it takes a literal divine intervention just to get him through the door of Cornelius' house. In fact, in one of my favorite little details, uh, Peter Um, like a not very polite house guest. He's excited that he's kind of caught on to this thing God is doing, but when he shows up to Cornelius' house, he's so excited and he tells Cornelius, man, God's doing something amazing. Uh, It's so amazing, in fact, that that I'm even willing to enter your house. Before, you never could have gotten me in your house. It would have defiled me, right? Not not what you want to hear as a host, but, you know, okay, Peter's, he's getting up to speed. Uh, But then, when Peter preaches the good news about Jesus... Cornelius and his whole household believe and, importantly, they receive the Holy Spirit in a way that is obvious to Peter and those who came with him. Listen to what it says in chapter 10, verse 45. It says, And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, that is, Jewish believers who traveled with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out Even on the Gentiles, the Jewish believers, seeing undeniable proof that these Gentiles had received salvation and received the Holy Spirit just as they had, are amazed. Why are they they amazed? They're amazed 
Because God offered the gift of salvation to everyone, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, with no prior conditions, none, based on no human evaluation of worth. Friends, when we talk about God's saving grace, we are talking about a gift that is offered with no prior conditions, a gift that is offered first, not in response to us, but offered first, and a gift that is given with no respect for how others judge our worth. That's the first facet. The second facet of God's grace I'd like us to explore is called superabundance. Superabundance. God's grace is superabundant. Look with me at Romans 5, 20 to 21. Paul writes this. He says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, to increase sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, now this, this is fun. It's not going to seem like fun maybe to some of you, but it's fun to me. Uh, so just hold on. You're going to get your second Greek word of the morning. I know this is very exciting. Uh, and your second Greek word is this, hooper parasuo. Hooper parasuo, all right? And that word means superabound. You can maybe even hear why it gets translated that way. What happens is that Paul uses the same root word three times in those verses, all right? Uh, it's, it's the word for increase or abound or to bring to its full extent. Um, parasuo, three times. So, so listen, I'll point them out. Paul says, now the law came in so that sin might increase, that's one. But where sin abounded, two, grace superabounded. Hooper parasuo. Paul takes the same word that he's already used twice and he slaps in front of it the Greek prefix for hyper or super. Now I know this is nerdy, uh, but I had to share it because A, I find it really fun and interesting. But B, more importantly, uh, because I want you, as best you can, to feel the force and, and excitement of what Paul is writing here, okay? Uh, so think about this from Paul's perspective, from what Paul has written in the previous five chapters. Paul has laid out the case that the power of sin, apart from Jesus, the power of sin had put all humanity without exception under its sway. The, that power had condemned each and every single one of us to death, it was a power that no human being ever, ever had broken free of. And for what it's worth, we don't need to take Paul's word for it, do we? You know the power of sin in your own life. I know it. We all understand how great that power, how strong the grip of sin is. And so now, hear Paul's excitement, because Paul writes to the Romans, he says, listen, listen. Precisely at this point, where all human power and all human effort and all human wisdom and discipline had failed, the grace of God through Christ Jesus has conquered. And not just barely, okay, not just by a little bit, it wasn't a close thing. Jesus has crushed the power of sin, he's broken it forever. And so now Paul can write to the church in Rome and say, listen, listen, 
I know the power of sin seems insurmountable, but wherever the power of sin is great, the grace of God is greater still by far. Where sin abounds, grace doesn't just abound in equal measure. It super abounds. So what does that mean? Well, what it means for you and me is that God's grace is not just sufficient for us. It is super, hyper-sufficient. It means there is no sin in any life that is so great that God's grace is not greater still. It means there is no sinner so lost, so wicked, that God's grace is not greater by far. Now, I want to pause here a minute, because again, I know these are the kinds of things we say all the time, but I want you to think through what that means when we say that. Human history has some truly evil people in it. People whose sin is, is unfathomable whose wickedness has led to the deaths of countless people. It's a sin that would terrify us if, if we could truly wrap our minds around its full extent. And Paul knows that. Rome had some pretty bad dudes. And yet Paul writes to the church in Rome and says, even those people whose sin looks like it's stacked to the sky... When that sin encounters the grace of God, the grace of God is not adequate to cover it. It's not sufficient to meet it. The grace of God buries that sin in a flood. God's grace is not abundant. It's not sufficient. It is super abundant. Now let me say this, because this is how I like to think about it. That does not mean that God's grace is cheap. It's not cheap. It's in fact very costly. It costs the shed blood of his only son, something we are going to remember together in a little bit here. His grace isn't cheap. It cost God dearly. But it is boundless. It's limitless. When we talk about the saving grace of God, we are talking about a grace that is super abundant. So when we talk about God's grace, we're talking about a gift that comes with no prior conditions and a gift that is super abundant. And third, we're, when we talk about God's grace, we're talking about a grace that is effective. It's efficacious. What we mean by that is simply that God's gift of salvation always has its intended effect. When God gives you the gift of salvation through the atoning death of Jesus, you are saved. No one receives that gift only to discover on judgment day that it didn't take. Everyone who receives that gift in faith receives salvation and new life in Christ. Look with me at Ephesians 2, 4-6. Paul writes, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you are saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. 
I'm going to guess that of all the facets we're covering this morning, I suspect this is the one we think about the least. Uh, it's, and it is, in our defense, it's the easiest to take for granted. And yet, I'd like us to take just a few minutes this morning to recognize that what we're talking about is a miracle. It's a miracle each and every time it happens. Look, Paul says, as clearly and bluntly as he can, that until God extends that gift of grace to us, we're dead. We are spiritually dead. We are dead in our sins. Death outside of Jesus is the universal destiny of all humanity. But God has graciously offered salvation to all people without prior conditions. And everyone, everyone who receives it, is brought in that moment from death to life, to new life in Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for us? It means, simply, that we don't have to live in doubt or limbo about our eternal destiny. Because no one who receives God's gift in faith will receive anything less than the full measure of God's grace. His gift never fails. It never fails to do its work, ever. In fact, in a way, we have already received the down payment. Uh, notice, you may be caught in that last verse we read. Paul writes that last part in the past tense. And it might be strange to you to think of it this way, but it wasn't to Paul. If you have received the gift of, of God, of his grace, Paul says, then you have already been raised up, raised up with Christ Jesus. You've been made alive. Raised up, past tense. You already have new life. Out of death, out of nothing, God has brought us to life. And that's a miracle. God's grace comes without prior conditions. It is without limit. And it is always effective. It always does its work. Here's how I would sum this up this morning. God's greatest gift of salvation and eternal life is offered freely to all people with no prior conditions. Well, we're, we're closing our, our series here on the five solas, uh, and so I think it's only fitting to end with, with a, a story, a short story, I promise, about Martin Luther. Uh, Luther famously used to uh, exhaust and exasperate his confessors. When he was a monk, he was notorious for confessing his sin for hours at a time. Uh, and as you can imagine, the poor guy on the other side is starting to lose his mind. Because this is, this is not like one, it's not like, hey, I haven't been here for a year, so I got a lot to catch up on. We're talking like daily. He goes on for hours. Uh, finally, one of his confessors says, Martin, Martin, I, 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 we got to figure something else out here. I, I, can't, I can't do this every day. Maybe what we need to do is, is we, just, we need to focus on the big things. But Luther wasn't a fool. He wasn't having that. He, he said, no, listen, you and I both know I am just as condemned by the little sins as I am by the big ones. Look, for all of his problems, and Luther, like the rest of us, had many flaws, God gave him one powerful and penetrating insight, and it was this. He understood that if he wanted to stand at the last judgment, and he wanted God to look at him and to say, 
Martin, I find you not guilty. guilty. I declare you to be in the right. If he wanted God to say that and he wanted it to be true, Luther realized then God was going to have to make it true because he, under his own power, simply could not. He simply could not. And so one day, reading in Romans, it dawned on Luther that that was exactly what God had done. God had done it. Romans 1, 16, 17 says this. And this is the verse that really got his mind spinning. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone, everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, beginning to end. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It turned out, and he realized, and it turned his life upside down, that the righteousness that he had always wanted, that right standing before God that seemed like it was always just beyond his reach, it turned out God was freely offering that to him as a gift, and he always had been. That righteousness could, after all, be his. But it could be his by grace and grace alone. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with hearts full of praise and thanksgiving as we gladly acknowledge that you have done for us in Jesus something that we could have never done for ourselves. And so, Father, I pray uh, for those here this morning, Lord, if there are those who have never received your gift of grace, I pray that you might move in their heart right now. I pray that, that they might be struck to the core by the truth that your gift is offered freely to all people on equal terms, even them, wherever they are. All they need do is receive it. And Lord, for those of us who have already received that gift, God, I pray that you would, you would continue to impress upon us the truth of your grace, that we would become people who don't just receive your gift, but who are shaped by it. Lord, I just pray for those right now who might be weighed down under a burden of, of sin or guilt or shame. Lord, I pray that, that they would be struck by the superabundance of your grace and that with joyful hearts, glad hearts, they might lay that down before you. They might confess it and experience your forgiveness, which is given freely as a gift. God, might we be people who receive your grace and then who are in turn shaped by it and dispense it to others. In your name we pray, amen.